Voice of America, Washington, D.C., signing on. When the senses have... Welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org, BrushBeater.org, BrushBeater Training and Consulting, and hosted by me, the best-selling author of The Gorilla's Guide to the Baofeng Radio and The Gorilla Dispatch, Volumes 1 and 2. This evening, I have an incredible guest on. We've spent the past hour and 10 minutes now having a really an incredible conversation and a man who I really don't think that I can do him and his brilliance enough justice in the introduction, but I'm going to attempt to do so anyway. I am joined by E.M. Burlingame, who is the author of Starving for Leadership, which I think is a a must read that is going to be on my list. It is a leadership and business tactics and unconventional warfare, the way of the team, which is another wonderfully, um, wonderfully written from the outset and the description book on leadership. And I'm going to be adding this one to my list of must reads as well. And his current book that we're, we're going to be describing and discussing and talking about in detail. And I think that just from what I've seen of it, It is a must read if you are trying to make sense of the world today, but the eternal war. Mr. Burlingame, it is great to have you on. Um, For the Radio Contra audience out there, which is just over 14,700 listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. You, you are... You are one of the most interesting guests, I believe, that I've I've ever had the honor of talking to with just this unique perspective on life. This just like, you know, you you are definitely um, and and I don't use this this um, descriptor lightly. You are very much like an Ernest Hemingway type character just from the conversation that I've had with you. Just so fascinating, a fascinating background, a man of war, a man of a, a thinker, a, an engineer. Uh, so brilliant. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I appreciate it, Matt, and uh, you're too kind. Um, started out in tech, um, software stuff, goofing around in the 80s, went in the Army uh, in the mid-80s for a couple years. Um, started in the artillery, reclassed the infantry, and was uh, at the Old Guard in Washington, D.C. during uh, Desert Storm. Um, kind of wandered in the woods for a while, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Thought I'd try to be a semi-pro athlete. That didn't go so well. Um, 
I mean, it was a good time, but I wasn't going to go pro. So uh, I went back to Silicon Valley, got involved in tech, uh, started in digital banking, telecommunications, got invited to go to China for a few years to be in the investment banking and private equity space around telecom, primarily in digital media as an analyst um, back in the early 2000s. Uh, went to Europe for a year in the yacht business, which was an interesting time, uh, helping a company restructure. Um, tried to do, a, got into some smaller boutique investment banks and you know computational capitals, what we call it today. Tried to do a big project with government contracting and realized how that's an interesting world, shall we say. And, um, and then in my early 40s, decided that uh, there was a war going on. There was some things I needed to understand. And so I tried out for special forces, uh, was selected and uh, spent some years there six years on active, a few more years with uh, 20th group. And during the time of 20th group, I was doing my doctoral studies in computational engineering to uh, understand where we are with AI. And then some brain injuries kind of caught up with me that I didn't know about, like it happens with a lot of our guys, a lot of people. Um, it's actually a lot more common than people would realize, not just among service members, but in the broader community. And that took me down a different path. And um, now I help guys recover from brain injuries. I do some research with the National Foundation for Integrated Medicine around traumatic brain injury, bioelectrics, um, uh, bioelectric medicine, and, and some other things, and, and write books. And that led, led me to you. Well, this is, uh, it, it, it is a huge honor to have you on. And you know, for, for the TBI traumatic brain injury and as someone who, um, you know, I had to overcome some pretty serious challenges. We were talking about that off air, uh, dealing with a, a level two TBI and actually believe it or not. And this is something I didn't tell you off air is I had to overcome a stammer that I developed as a result mm -hmm. of it, which a lot of people, when I tell them that, you know, you, you, podcast you're you know you're yeah. teaching classes three weekends out of out of the month every month you know you are a lecturer it, how you know how, how did you because i i had to do it it, it was a determination uh on on my part that yeah. um you know this this is a goal and so you you absolutely can do it but i certainly uh the all of the things that we're learning now about the brain. And, and it's so fascinating to, to hear you talk about it. And, you know, what we were talking about off air, that was um, the, the leading edge research. And, and, you know, you, you were saying some pretty profound things that I hadn't heard before. I I've heard nowhere. And, and it was, you know, it was, it was really mind blowing uh, pardon, pardon the pun, but there, there isn't a better one that, that I can come up with uh, regarding AI and how, you know, how far away we are from AI, because that that's a question that so many people have on, you know, the, 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 the real thinkers out there and that, you know, are, are somewhat ambivalent to, to the daily politic of, of the things that are going on in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I consider the rise of AI to be one of the, not the only, but one of the threats to humanity long term. 
And, you know, your, your perspective on AI is that, that we are a very long ways away from true artificial intelligence, that the rise of things like chat GPT, um, you know, what, what we would all call machine learning is exactly that. And that we're not really close to, to actual AI. If you can for us, you know, this is something that's so fascinating for, for me personally, can you elaborate on that and, and just exactly what's meant by, by the fact that, you know, we're not close to AI just yet? Yeah. So forgive me, I was trying to find the name of the gentleman at MIT who does the micro robotics. Um, the two most impactful thinkers on what we consider to be modern AI uh, would be um, Turing and von Neumann. And Turing put forward the Turing test that everybody's been holding up as the holy grail of what it means to have a, a human level, you know, an AGI, right? Artificial general intelligence. And the test for that was that you could speak to it and not tell that it wasn't human. And that's a rather extraordinarily complex thing, it turns out, because we're now 70 some odd years on from when he put that forward and we still don't actually have it. Now it can fool a bunch of people now, but not somebody who's actually really paying attention and has the capacities. The other one who, who refined that argument a little bit, and there's other players, and forgive me, it's AI is not my domain, so I'm not, you know, not the expert there, but um, the other one is von Neumann, who, who better refined the Turing test and arguments around it and the computational side of things, right? Um, when we say uh, machine intelligence, when we say artificial intelligence, when we say computational intelligence, you know, we're talking about <clears throat> things that appear to be the same and have some relation to one another, but not, are, not, are not actually necessarily the same thing. Bringing it back to the question you were asking, though, right? We have heavily overfocused on machines that can speak intelligently and can process language based dialogue and text, um, and some increasingly mathematical, like Stephen Wolfram's work, uh, MathWorks' work, et cetera, um, you know, but can process formal and informal language at ever higher levels. And we're getting, you know, with ChatGPT, especially the new one that's rolling out, we're getting closer to that. But it turns out that, and I would say this is the big failing of, of modern education, it turns out that our ability to string together and understand complex sentences isn't actually intelligence. It's linguistic intelligence. It's, it's the ability to communicate <clears throat> but as we all know, I know a whole lot of people can put really clever, brilliant sentences together who don't understand a damn thing, either about what they're saying or what other people are saying. And usually what they can't understand what the other person is saying, no matter how well articulated the statement is. So the ability to speak intelligently doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the system, the thing is actually intelligent. It's linguistically skilled. Um, and we're not too, we're not in a place yet. 
like if you look at chat GPT and what it can do, it can do software programming, it can do some mathematics, that's not its area. Um, it can do software programming, it can do linguistic stuff. Um, even with um, uh, Doll E, which is, you know, at the Google project for the visual stuff, that's still a, a language-based prompt. Um, so the ability to read and write complex language, software programming is just language. There are languages like Latin, you know, they're just another language like German or Latin or something else, right? <clears throat> um, that's not actual intelligence. And we, we need to be careful because we are, as a species, we are a linguistic monkey. That's really, you know, all the other differences between our other primate, you know, the higher apes and, uh, and us, the primary difference between us uh, is that we are a linguistic species. We process, communicate, transfer information between one another and internally, right? How we, how we articulate our internal state is in words, right? That dialogue that most people except for psychopaths have, right? Actually, it's a lot more people that don't have that internal dialogue. But the point is, is that we are a linguistic species. That's what differentiates us. And our linguistic circuits are very complicated. They're very deep in the brain and they're very easy to hijack. Right. And it's one of the ways, the easiest ways for us to hijack somebody's linguistic system is to trick them into thinking with our words that we are smarter than we are that we know more than we know. And that's where we are with machine intelligence. Now that doesn't mean that we don't have machines that can do really sophisticated things because we do, right? If you wanna hack a system, you're using language. You're using computer languages and machine language, et cetera, but you're still using language, right? So there are very sophisticated things that can be done with LLMs, you know, large language models that do have very, very impactful things in the world that we really do need to pay attention to and be aware of. But the um, super intelligence runaway AGI, we're a long ways away from that. And I think fundamentally, and this goes to the work of Dr. Michael Levin in biology and bioelectrics, um, and in microcellular intelligence and in the work, forgive me, I can't remember the gentleman's name, out of um, uh, MIT in microrobotics, but we're actually finding that intelligence is probably something that is an a, a, a cumulative thing. It's not happening in the brain. It's not happening in the enteric brain, because, right, we have two brains in our body, the one in the skull, the one that's wrapped around the organs, et cetera. And that that's not actually where the computational, you know, the heavy computational stuff is going on. It's probably acting more like a router, you know, in telecommunications systems and the, the heavy informational lifting is going on at the cellular level. Wow. It is that that's such a profound, you know, even from, you know, not just the medical perspective on that but just the the, the um wow that's just so fascinating that that turns a lot of what we have been led to believe by mainstream science 
by accepted science for, you know, decades, well, we could say over a hundred years, at least uh, going back to Jeremy Bentham in, and, um, you know, the, the early days of criminology, in fact, that, that it, it becomes, I mean, in, and that theory could explain what well, does explain a great deal of other things that, that we regard as, uh, potential social issues and how, uh, you know, coming from my background in sociology, how environmental factors impact certain adverse reactions and adverse uh, causal factors that that, that are uh, prevalent in societies. That, that's very, we wonder, we wonder more and more about the environmental thing, though, right? Because and there's great work that Dr. Jonathan Haidt's doing. Um, he's not the only one, of course. There's a lot of people, but he's he's really, I think doing the best of accumulating this work and putting it into um, an approachable, uh, approachable forum, right? And he's a wonderful communicator. So I think Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, um, but we're finding that even our morals are inherited. Um, and then there's the other argument or discussion that's happening now and and again, I'm, I'm not a behavioral science guy. That's not my domain. Uh, I come from telecommunications and semiconductors and telecom. Um, but when I was doing computational capital, we were looking at behavioral stuff and, and linguistic spaces and, and predictive stuff and social media and all that. And the same on the Intel side when, when I was doing targeting. But um, the question becomes one of, okay, nature versus nurture. Okay, it's a fair argument. But when you are a child, so there's two major developmental milestones. There's three and a half years of age. Most all of the neural network, the way in which all your neurons and everything's wired is by about three and a half years of age. The social programming, the software, so to speak, and that's a very gross statement, but the software, so to speak, of how that, you know, operating system and it's major applications for how you're going to use the hardware, and again, that's a gross approximation, is laid down by about seven, seven and a half years of age. So by seven, seven and a half years of age, you are basically who you're going to be for the rest of your life. Even with brain injuries, now that's a little bit different because we can have a different conversation about that, but for all intents and purposes, you are who and what you're going to be in pretty much every way by the age of seven and a half. Okay. So then you look about, okay, well, what about the environment? Uh, you know, so uh, nurture. Well, up through that age, almost all of your environment is created by humans. You haven't made your way out into the world yet, not in the protective care of an adult at virtually every minute of the day. I'm older now, so in my age, we were getting kicked out of the damn house when we were when we were a lot smaller. Kids are today, but, same here, man. Right? Get your ass out of the house. Don't come back till the lights are out. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which did lead me to have some wonderful journeys with my horses when I was a young boy. But um, uh, the point is, is that you know, this whole uh, nurture conversation is it nurture versus nature? It's like, well, their genes are your genes. And their genes are shaping the environment and the environment they grew up in were shaped by the genes that they share from their parents. See where I'm going? It's like, okay, how much actual non-genetic lineage 
environment can you be in to actually influence your genes that wasn't already influenced by your genes to begin with? Maybe not yours personally, but your parents and their parents, et cetera, right? And then, you know, the work that Dr. Heights uh, articulated, et cetera, and I think he's actually, he was actually involved in this, showing that we inherit most of our morals. That's that that really leads me back to the eternal war and the conversation that we were having previous to coming on air, because, in, you know, the the let's say the the leftist argument, the conflict theory argument, the Marxist argument that if if so to speak, that morality and the idea of morality is an inherited quality, an intrinsic quality, then the the leftist answer to that would be then there is no first principle to a society. And thus the, the superstructure, if we were to talk about Antonio Gramsci, the superstructure itself is an artificial creation. And, and this is something that you see on, on the radical left. This is um, to varying degrees, even in the mainstream left, uh, you, you see some of the, these things permeate the um, uh, different variations of this idea that are watered down to certain degrees, permeate uh, the, the mainstream left, but very much on the militant left, we, the, the left that we don't necessarily see um, day to day. We, we do not see them. We do not encounter their language day to day. Now, you know, I've been indoctrinated to that language. It, it has have you in, in, uh, in, in certain pipelines. And, you know, we kind of understand the, the message that's there. And what you're bringing to the forefront with the eternal war is this question of, of a first principle. And that is critical. When we, we begin talking about language, we begin talking about AI, we begin talking about these things that, that are what define us as humans and humanity and the humanities as the study of thus, then we begin to understand this is the groundwork for what what creates a first principle of a society. And I contend personally, and, and this, this is simply my own reflection on this and how I rationalize the world today is that the West and, and the United States in particular, as the leader of the West, uh, you know, the European nations, they are, are definitely following suit of whatever it is the United States produces. And that that's culturally, we, we've essentially found ourselves in a state where we're having a battle internally of what our first principle actually is. And it's a battle between what we see as, as traditional moral definitions and this uh, open-ended objectivism that is simply it, it, whatever is, is the um, whatever suits the end goal is good and just because we shall define it by the outcome with with objectivism and th this is really the, the ideological framework that that uh left-leaning libertarians come from your socialists come from because it's it's whatever is for the, the greater social good conservatives look to the past and that definition of morality um as we well this is what brought us to this point and so therefore that this is why we are going to continue these practices um you know define for us in in your terms with 
the eternal war, that first principle and why, what it's going to take to rediscover this in the West and why it's so critical to society now. Yeah. Okay. So give me a second. Let's start maybe with the, why it's so important first so that we don't lose that. Um, all the left, the right, liberals, conservatives, um, Christians, atheists, uh, even Marxist, capitalists, all, all of that language has become so corrupted that none of it actually has any real meaning anymore. It really doesn't, right? These are old definitions of things that at one point did articulate realities, actual human condition realities but it becomes so corrupted by resentfuls and resentful people, uh, which are in every one of the institutions of which those labels, you know, make up, right? But all of those, that language is now irrelevant because it is also corrupted. Now, it doesn't mean that some, of, again, the principles, the ideas, some of the concepts, the realities, right? But we have, in the simplest way, we have millions and millions of books. We have hundreds of millions of research papers. We have petabytes, you know, I don't know, billions and billions of hours of content. It's all too much information for any of it to really be real anymore, right? There's a counter argument for the counter argument for the counter argument for the counter argument. All of it is linguistically solid, or most of it, not all of it, sorry, right? But, you know, at least 50% of it is, whether regardless of whose side or this or that, at least 50% of it is logically consistent enough, right? Whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. It's logically consistent enough that, and it's got each one of those logically consistent enough things has somebody willing to fight over it. What's happened is we have become trapped in the English speaking world in particular, but since World War II, most all of the world, because the world's been in the English speaking system, predominantly all of it has, um, we are all trapped in a massive artificial reality tunnel that we have got to find a way out of, and we can't find our way out of it using all of the existing language constructs. We have to get back to first principles. And first principles are based off of physics, chemistry, biology, thermodynamics, um, uh, the laws of the conservation of energy, dissipative structure, right? So there's, there are key fundamental realities that are base reality. And we have to get back to them. And we can't get back to them. Now, one of the amazing things is that Despite all of this explosion of information, there has actually been a pretty good increase in actual knowledge. I mean, real knowledge, fundamental knowledge about some very fundamental things. Now, it all gets, you know, either poo-pooed or de-indexed, to use the data broker term, right, of how things get, you know, whether you get to see it or not in social media or the Internet, et cetera, right? Um, but it's out there. They can't make the research go away. They can't make the papers go away. When I was doing my doctoral studies in computational science and engineering, I learned fairly early on that if you wanted to get funded or you wanted to get your paper, the research for a paper approved just to do the research, 
I had to find some very clever ways to art to title the paper and very clever ways to write my abstract and the outline so I could get it approved to do it. So the work's out there. It's just not in a straight line. Okay, this, 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 and this means this, this, and this. And the reason is 99%, now it's changing a little bit now, but 99% of all research that's been done in every field has been funded by the U.S. government since the 1950s. People don't remember, but Eisenhower had two warnings, and the second one was the one he was the most adamant about. The first everybody knows, the military-industrial complex. His other warning was the government research complex, which is tied into the military complex, but that was his other warning, and that was the one that he was the most concerned about. Right? So... The, pro the issue is the research has been done for base reality and we've learned a lot. It's hard to get to, it's hard to find. A lot of that work was actually done in the 60s, right? Because the amazing thing with the Oppenheim, with the, um, the Manhattan Project, right? Those are the smartest human beings. Like, that was the largest assemblage of the smart, genuinely no shit, smartest human beings the world's ever produced of a generation all together in the same project with an unlimited budget. A lot of things came out of there and a lot of them went back to universities and, and by the 50s and 60s, that brain power was still working. They were all friends. Well, I wouldn't say they're all friends. That's, <laughs> that's not true, but they all knew each other. They were all working together. So point being is this, we have to get back to base reality. There's a lot of extraordinary work that's been done in physics, that's been done in chemistry, that's been done in biology, biosystems, in informational process, you know, uh, Shannon information theory, quantum information theory, computing, right? So there is a sociology, genetics, yada, yada, right? Okay. So if we are going to get to a place to where we as individual human beings can communicate, whether we agree or not is not the point, right? We're not trying to get to a place to where we all agree, but we have to get to a place where we can talk first principles again. And to do that, we have to under, understand that despite all of the complexity we see and hear around us every day, and even within ourselves every day, there are actually some fairly simple things at play, some very simple forces at play that when they in Mandelbrot fashion, you know, fractal mathematic fashion, accumulate upon one another, look like very complex, crazily sophisticated, unknowable things, but they're not. They're knowable, maybe not predictable, but they're knowable, right? All right. So I had a very interesting childhood, <laughs> to say the least. And that started me on a journey of trying to figure out why some people are one way and somebody else in the exact same situation is a fundamentally different way that had the same starting point, in this case, a mother. And having been taken out of the bigger environment and moved up onto a hippie commune on the Canadian border and isolated for many years, also had a lot of extraneous stuff removed, right? A lot of extraneous interactions, influences, et cetera, just completely removed. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have, <laughs> it was interesting. I lived in a teepee with uh, no floor for two years when I was a kid. Um, 
point is, starting on this journey to try to figure out why do some people re react to certain things in a, I wouldn't say positive, but in a constructive way. And why do certain people react to the exact same thing in a destructive way, whether it's destructive to others or to themselves, right? Or both. And that started me on a long 50 some odd year journey. That's what led to the eternal war, right? <clears throat> Looking at people, when I look at people today, it's very easy to see that people that are always who and what they are exactly only fall into two camps. People who have envy as a core, a core function in, their, in themselves, and that envy leads to resentment and everything they do is, is a result of that trying to react to that resentment or act upon that resentment. And then there's other people who are just, they're grateful. There's gratitude in them. And they're trying to act upon that gratitude is response. They take up responsibility. And when you look down underneath all the complex language and the smiles and the artificial shit and the sociopathy and the narcissism and the, and that's on all sides, by the way. So it's not, you know, we got psychopaths and sociopaths and narcissists and all the other borderline person that, you know, the, the, the Schedule A and the Schedule B folks, right? I don't think it's called Schedule, but um, we got them on all sides, right? They're, they're on everywhere. When you look down underneath, you'll find there's either resentment or responsibility. There's either envy or gratitude. It's like, okay, well, that's interesting. And I was like, okay, well, if you're driven by resentment, envy and resentment are your primary motivators what would you do you know how would you move through the world you would wage war with everything you would try to take as much as you could in whatever way you could do it and and then that's warfare right because you know there's only one percent of warfare of any warfare even world war ii that was actually fought on the battlefield with guns Right. Ninety nine percent of warfare is in the mind. It's in the economic system, the financial system, the diplomatic system, the social systems, the entertain, you know, the uh, informational space. Right. It's OK. So they're going to wage a war against everybody, try and take everything that they can probably try to kill as many people, genocide, use, hurt. You know, these are your slavers. Right. OK. If you're driven by gratitude and responsibility, what do you go? How would you move through the world? Well, your single, your actual, the resentful people move through the world thinking they need power and control. People have responsibility move through the world like, I just want to play. I just want to have a good time. And I don't mean that as, you know, girls gone wild kind of stuff, right? Um, I don't know how old the most of your audience is, but you know, those were their old videos. You can <laughs> I, buy think, I think most of them will get the reference. Right, okay, yeah. sure. The one thing that always, always got me is about what about all the drunk ass boys, right? So it's not just the girls going well, anyway. Um, but they're, you know, they want to play toxic. a game. They're toxic males. You can't toxic have them. They're toxic males. That's, that's to correct. <laughs> correct. Who the wild girls were there to meet, by the way. So yeah, yeah. Just say it. Yeah, they but, were there um, to get paid, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, with no responsibility. Um, 
But the point is, is that, you know, the first group is driven by resentment. They're waging war against everybody. They're trying to take as much as they can. They're trying to use people as much as they can. The other group of people are, they have, they have a sense of responsibility to themselves and to the people around them, to the world around them. They just want to play a game. They want to, and, and if you're, if you're somebody who's motivated to play and, ha- and enjoy life, what do you want to do? You want other people to, it's boring to do it by yourself. It's not fun to do it by yourself. So you're always wanting to bring more people into the game. You always want to figure out ways to have them come play the game. But the game still got to work, still got to pay for itself, still got to be enjoyable. You know what I mean? So you, there's a, there are bounds to what you can do, right, in the infinite game. And it's infinite because it's infinitely adaptable, infinitely expandable, et cetera. And the eternal war is there because it's better. Okay, so it's like, okay, well, if that's how humans work, and then there's about 50% of the population, combined those are about 30% or 50%. Thirty. It seems to be weighted more towards resentfuls in every system, uh, every culture. And then there's about 50% of the people that I, they're not really firmly fixed. They're a little bit resentful about some things and they're a little bit grateful and responsible about some things and it changes in their life and in different aspects of their life, et cetera. And, so we just call them the adoptables, right? And the resentful and the, redo- and the responsibles are fighting constantly over the adoptables. Resentful to control and dominate them and to use them to help destroy the responsibles and responsibles are like, holy cow, how the hell do we help keep the war from destroying them? How do we help lower resentment levels in the general populace? How do we improve and expand the game to let more people come in and play and people play at higher, more sophisticated, better reward levels, right? Okay, that seems to be seems to play out in humans. It's like, okay, well, what about other species? Yeah, actually every social species we see. Look at wolf packs. Look at lion prize. Look at chimp packs, right? Look at any of these. Oh, and by the way, look at lobsters and crabs. And this this social status hierarchy, war versus game, resentment. for. And oh, by the way, it shows up in neural transmitter differences. It shows up in neural structure differences. Um, physio- neurophysiological response differences, linguistic pattern differences. You know what I mean? It shows up in all of these different things. It's like, okay, maybe that's a fundamental property. It's like, okay, was that only in life, right? In living systems. No, actually, that actually shows up in chemistry, chemical processes. It shows up in microcellular, microcellular processes. It shows up in physics. It's like, okay. What might be down underneath that? There's a a theory called dissipative structure theory. And the gentleman who's really done, it's a broad number of people doing a lot of great work. But the gentleman who's um, really done the best job, like Jonathan Haidt in the social stuff and the psychology stuff, there's a gentleman named Eric Klein. He's at the Santa Fe Institute. Truly brilliant polymath, and I and I don't mean that you know, uh, Pat. I mean the guy's crossed multiple domains, just brilliant. And Eric Klein's done work on uh, abiogenesis, and abiogenesis talks about the RNA world, which predated the DNA world, how life came about, how single-celled organisms came about, all this organization, etc. And abiogenesis seems to be pretty solid, and. Uh, he also touches on dissipative structure theory because that's what drives abiogenesis. Now, forgive me, I don't remember who's the leading proponent of dissipative structure theory, 
But in essence, what it says is that there are thermal uh, disequilibrium and thermal distributions at every level in the universe, right? And think of that as energy or information, heat, whatever you want to, right? Whatever makes more sense to you. For me as an information guy, it's, it's information distributions. It's, there's these, ran, not random, but there's these unequal distributions of information out there in the universe. Um, chaos, right? Chaos, decoherence. And out of that decoherence and noise, structures naturally emerge to try and process that noise. And those structures can become more sophisticated, more complex. Now that adds more that adds more noise, et cetera, but that noise is at a higher, more structured level, et cetera. You go from just basic fields in physics and you can actually get to chemistry, chemical component pieces, amino acids, RNA, cells. You can get all of that just from dissipative structure theory. You can get to life just from that. Okay. So what would the eternal war be all the way back at that level? That would be noise, chaos, decoherence, trying to constantly increase the amount of noise and chaos, which is what the systems do. And the game, the infinite game, would be those structures that emerge out of that noise to use that heat distribution, the noise, et cetera, to do metabolic processes or functional processes that dissipate and regularize or organize that noise, heat, whatever. That's the infinite game. The eternal war is the, the decoherence, trying to increase decoherence. I think entropy, you know, entropy is one of the words that's been used for a long time. We've kind of gone beyond entropy. So resentfuls, responsibles, resentfuls fighting an eternal war, which is trying to constantly add noise, chaos, trying to constantly corrupt systems, structures, institutions to add noise into the system, to just, you know, to take, to destroy. And responsibles on the other side who are building these structures out of the noise to try and play, to try and expand, to try and improve in, in capabilities. And that goes, that's, us in humans and everything we look at is a is a direct result of that wow that's it really you know that brings us to where we are and and i think that that gives a good foundational understanding to a lot of a lot of people especially uh specifically in this audience because there, there's a lot of people out there who are extremely intelligent high high levels of education and you know or no education but just super smart yeah. right right yeah, i was yeah, gonna yeah. say conversely yeah, yeah. some of the most intelligent people that i've known in my lifetime they, they don't have any degrees or letters yeah. behind their name yeah. um and and you know ironically one of the the misconceptions and i i have in recent years chalked it up to a failing of, of uh, Western civilization and the bias of Western civilization is that we considered Afghans to be stupid culturally. And we, we considered them to a person, person to person because of their lack of education and because of their, their maybe lack of worldliness 
because of uh, their their social isolation and xenophobia, uh, cultural xenophobia, uh, as well as as uh, uh, ethnic xenophobia. Um, you know, and and the, these are are cultural preservation mechanisms among them, and this is something that I became. I, I am on a dis. I want to touch on that. I want. I want to, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to touch on that. No, go ahead. I, I don't think that they are cultural protective mechanisms. I think that they are an error noise reduction error correction mechanism. To your the initial part of what you were just saying. And, and back to the first part of the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. We live in the Western civilization in particular. And again, I really can only speak for the English speaking world, although I've studied other, spoken other languages, et cetera, but I grew up in the English speaking world, right? I know its history, I have its genetics, its epigenetic, right? But point is over the last 400 years in particular, and there's these 400-year cycles in the English-speaking world. And there's great work by um, Howe, Neil Howe, the fourth turning and other things, right, that articulate the great cycles, right, saculums, the 80-year and the 400-year. So I'm not, you know, making something up here. But in the English-speaking world, for some reason, we have these 400-year cycles. And what they are is we build these complex, sophisticated linguistic structures to, to stay ahead of the resentfuls who are trying to enslave us, dominate, destroy, genocide, all that, right? About every 400 years, though, five saculums, they come to dominate all of the, the dialogue. All, so when we go to places like Afghanistan, Africa, etc., we roll in there thinking that these people aren't as smart as us, that they're not as intelligent, they're not as sophisticated. And if we just gave them education and, and all this... But the reality of the matter is they're more sophisticated than we are. And they're far closer to base reality and process, you know, with this extraordinary processor that every one of us is. They don't chase the linguistic stuff. They don't, we've equated our ability to articulate vast amounts of linguistic structures that we've put together in the English language that articulate a lot of the stuff, you know, the Mercuse stuff, the Mark stuff, the, you know, um, the Kimberly Crenshaw stuff, you know, the yada yada. These are all artificial constructs created solely in words that have virtually none, and most of them have no basis in reality whatsoever. We go to places like Afghanistan, et cetera, where people decided we are not going to build a society and civilization around lies. And artificial constructs. We choose to live closer to base reality. Now, it's got its own issues. It's got its own problems, right? So I'm not saying that because there's no such thing as a noble fucking savage. And that's a great, um, the blank slate in the modern denial of human nature is a book every one of your, your people should read. It's written by Steven Pinker. And boy, did he get PP slapped, shall we say, for writing it at Harvard. But it's a brilliant book. And one of the things that he articulates in there is there's no such thing as a noble savage. There is, and this concept of noble savage, I can't remember, I saw somebody the other day talking about this, was created by women. Yep. It was the whole concept of the noble savage was created by women. That if we just devolved society to a certain degree, then we would all be noble savages. It's never existed. And the reason it's never existed 
is because there is no competition in the world that is more ruthless and brutal than women, female, female competition. Why? Okay, so we can talk another part of this. The single most powerful driving force in biological systems is genetic propagation. It is wired into every, absolutely every process in every single cell on earth. With, with some few exceptions, right? Like viruses and, and some other things. But even there in viruses, it's actually there too. But it, it, the competition plays out different. But in prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells, the single most powerful driving force of everything that that cell does, and there's hundreds of trillions of them that make up each of us, is genetic propagation. So everything that we see in the world is, yes, organized either into the warfare resentfuls camp or into the game playing responsibles camp, but down underneath it in biological systems is genetic warfare. Like I go to Afghanistan and I'm told that, you know, it's all patriarchal society and the men suppress the women and yada, yada. I roll into Afghanistan. I do, you know, uh, village stability operations, get embedded right in fucking dirt collot. Which is fine. I don't mind. But you know what I mean? I, we were deeply embedded right in the community. Yeah. And yeah, I watched the women tear on the women. I heard men actually figuring out in conversations with us, et cetera, how to protect one of the young girls who was a beautiful, bright, smart girl who was getting just fucking destroyed by the older women in the village who wanted that control over them. And then if they couldn't get the control over the girl, then they would get the man involved and they fucked that man's life up to such a degree that he would he would do something horrible. Yep. There's no competition on earth more brutal than female and female. And unfortunately, then you get all the simp males who then support that behavior so they can get a chance to maybe pass on their genes. And now you wind up with 70, 80 percent of any fucking population who's on the warfare side of the of the ledger. And they don't even know why they, they've got these grievances and these, you know, they're they're resentful about this and this. And there's all these language constructs to support them and their arguments, et cetera. And reality down underneath it. It's just genetic warfare. That's a man. You, you, you I mean. You hit the nail on the head and you did it in a way that is so succinct and profound simultaneously. That it's just sheer brilliance. And, you know, you brought up Strauss and Howe in the fourth turning and, and the fourth turning really came into uh, common. We'll say common conservative parlance really with uh, Glenn Beck bringing it to, I mean, several of us knew about it previously and, and had read, you know, uh, with social psychology and anthropology and, you know, all, all your basic humanities and stuff, you're kind of familiar with, with some of these uh, theories. Uh, but Strauss and Howe, the fourth turning, it's, it's commonplace now that the people have read it. They, they kind of have an understanding of it. And we have this, uh, looming feeling. I, I can say personally that that reading Strauss and Howe woke several people who are close to me up. That was the one thing that they 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 saw everything else, you know, and and 
it, it was what it was. Things that occurred in, in life day to day, whatever. Okay. You know, like the, these are things we've seen it all before. Oh, there's going to be a gas shortage where there was under Jimmy Carter too. Oh, you know, oh, there's going to be economic inflation, things, deflation. It's all happened before. All the linguistic structures we can argue over. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, and mm-hmm. so they, they, Red Strauss and House fourth turning. And then all of a sudden now you're you're given this long-term view. And that's where the the juxtaposition of that with the Afghan and the Afghan culture, the Pashtu culture, really, really began to mesh quite well because this was their greatest asset. In my opinion, living among Afghans and and you know working with them and gaining an appreciation of their culture in comparison to Iraqis. Iraqis were, they were very different. They had their, they, I mean, in some ways there, there were some similarities in this, but they, they didn't really have a long-term view of things. The Afghans did. And we used to think that they were stupid because especially a lot of the elders that we would talk to and interact with, they could tell you how they were when the Soviets were in Afghanistan. But they didn't know how old they were in terms of years. But we weren't actually listening to what they were saying. This this was the problem. We were thinking in terms of year, like, you know, it's 2023. It'll be 2024 next. So so. they don't think about things like that. They think about planning season to planning season. You know, all right, so I have to put my crops in the ground and, and this is how things are done. This is how we have done them for thousands of years to bring us to this point. And this is that this was an internal safeguard. If we continue these practices, this is how we know. I know that when I grow chickpeas and when I grow wheat and when I grow oh, yeah. poppies, you're right. This this is yeah. how you do this. And it was very similar. I found it to be a, a very similar cultural analog to growing up in the rural South where tobacco is our staple crop and still is. But it, it was much more so when I was a child. I, I would say this, though, I, I, w- I would articulate this difference between the South. having done my doctoral studies in Birmingham, Alabama, which was an interesting experience for me coming from San Francisco. Um the Afghans also have thousands of years of contiguous history. They're at the, the crossroads of Central Asia and every great civilization that's ever been. All the great genetic events that have ever occurred all came out of Central Asia, and we forget that. And that goes back tens of thousands of years, by the way, not just to the to the right. t- Turks and the Mongols and the Ataturks and the right. Um, so. The Afghans also have a very deep understanding that they are an ancient, ancient people right. and that great kingdoms have been centered in their, you know, so they don't. And this, unfortunately, is one of those things where when. So think of it this way. I spent a lot of time in China, right? There is an institutional knowledge in very old civilizations that is very rich and deep. And it doesn't, it's had to be passed forward through many generations in oral traditions. So it's been simplified as much as it can be to ensure that it it gets as little. So it's got internal error correction to ensure that over generations, it picks up very little error in the transmission of that knowledge, right? 
Right. So when we roll into a place like China, uh, Vietnam, because uh, we made the same problem, same mistake in Vietnam, we thought these were, you know, peasant peoples, and we didn't realize that Vietnamese civilization was thousands of years old, very rich, right? So the issue is, is that these people have a very sophisticated understanding of how the world actually works, very close to base reality. They live much closer to reality than we do. That's a very, like Pashtuns, you mentioned the Pashtuns, that's an extraordinary culture with, with you know, extraordinary literature, actually because of the British and the British Empire. Hey, buddy. Um, it's very hard for us to go in there as a young civilization, particularly a merchant class driven civilization. And I think that's what's coming to an end right now. I think that's the great cycle that's coming undone. And it actually started in the 1620s on the Thames River. We had the English Reformation, the English Civil War. Yada, yada, yada. So the 400 year cycle, that was that time. I think the Industrial Revolution stuff is coming to an end. But anyways, back to the these peoples. They have a very, if you, and I spent a lot of time talking with them, right, between freaking firefights and taking fire and, you know, out rolling out, talk to people and all that. If you really talk with them, their, their understanding of human nature, their understanding of how people really are, how humans really function, how the crops like you know their, their understanding may not have all these academic papers and citations but if you talk with them you're going to realize that they have every bit of knowledge that we have they articulate it differently than we do and they don't have the means to measure that we do with all of our quote-unquote fancy science but when you come back from there and the early ted talks by the way the first couple years of ted talks were amazing because they actually went out and talked to these people and learned this knowledge, and then they would figure out how to put it to work and amazing things were happening, right? These ancient cultures have this unbelievably rich, sophisticated tapestry that's been able of, of knowledge, that's been able to be transferred across centuries and even millennia. That is things that we're still just figuring out. Yep. And, uh, and we come in there with all of our fancy constructs and they quite honestly, and I've had this conversation with some village elders, they look at us like we're children. Then we have yeah. the understanding of children. Yes. And they're not yes. wrong. I no, yes, it, I was told that. Yeah. I, yeah. I distinctly remember that conversation. And that was when it dawned on me. And and in in some ways, and, and I really didn't understand it until just a few years ago, because I was able to actually process, and I always go back to that conversation. It's because they understand the war in the game. They understand right. resentfuls and responsibles. They understand adoptables. They're living it. They're not trying to, and this not to pick on, but this is the great failing of Judeo-Christian belief systems, the Abrahamic belief systems, right? And in particular, in the Christian belief system, I had to study Hebrew when I was a kid. We were going to go live in a kibbutz. Um, and then the Yom Kippur War broke out and they closed the border. So we weren't able to leave. We were going to be gone like 10 days before the, the war started or we were leaving 10 days after the war started. Right. When the war, they closed the borders, couldn't go. But I had to study Hebrew as a kid, Aramaic as a kid, the Torah, the Talmud, all that. So I'm no expert at all. But it did start an interesting dialogue that I've had conversations with people who are very knowledgeable in those areas. And 
Christian belief system took the word meek as the translation of the original Aramaic word for the, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. The actual word is not the meek. It's the humble. But in Semitic tradition, you can't be humble unless you're first immensely strong, because otherwise you're just weak. So in the linguistic, the Semitic lang linguistic structure, that word was not the meek. It was the humble. And to be humble, you have to be amazingly strong. But think about that transliteration that may or may not have been done on purpose, probably on purpose, particularly in the King James Bible. Because what it does is it tells Christians to be weak. It doesn't tell them to be humble, which means to fully develop yourself and to be humble, to be strong, truly strong. That takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, a lot of study across a long period of time. I don't know if I lost you there. You back? You back, Matt? I lost you there for a while. You locked up. I think we lost you for just yeah, yeah. a second. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't remember what was the last thing I was saying there that you heard. Matt, are you back? I'm back. Okay. <laughs> good old country good. living. So what was the last thing hey. you heard? So the, the issue with, with uh, Judeo-Christian yes. society and the, the, the use of meek and how the, the King James translation specifically was saying that. Maybe. I don't know exactly. Right. Cause I don't know, but I've right. talked to biblical, I've talked to, um, uh, Torah experts, I've talked to Dead Sea Scrolls experts, etc. The actual word should be translated to the humble. To be humble, you have to develop yourself and become immensely strong. And then, like Jordan Peterson talks about, right, a man should be a beast, a demon, right? A monster is the word he actually uses. We don't want to be demons. And don't marry one, because I did. It was an interesting experience. Um <laughs> A man needs to be a monster, but have the monster in total control. Well, if you translate the original humble rather than meek, it would have told Western civilization to develop your, the, the common populace, particularly when the printing press came out and the Bible got out. Do we lose you? Lost you again. I'm back on with the starlight. No, oh, there right. you go. All right. So anyhow, the, the, the translation of meek and we'll get, we'll go for number three. It, it, it's, is a hundred percent my fault, but, but, but the no, translation. No, no, no. Yeah, so think of it this way. Think of it this way. <clears throat> we were moving into the age of absolute monarchy when the King James Bible in particular, and actually even before the printing press, we were moving from, strong councils of barons, which is the nobility, into absolute monarchy. And an absolute monarchy tied in with the church, whether it was the Church of England or the Catholic Church, was that made more sense for the church, for the religion. And it made more sense for the monarch to weaken the aristocracy and to do and to weaken the people. Right. OK, so 
Think about what would have happened to Christianity and Western civilization if the translation had been the humble rather than the meek. It would have taught people in Western civilization, the common man, that they needed to develop themselves fully, intellectually, physically, etc. Instead, it said the meek, where you can just be, if you're just a nice guy, you're good, you're going to get into heaven. Right. That's, uh, that's, that's pretty profound. And that's, that's something I've always wondered about as well, because there's certainly that, that internal struggle in Christianity between, um, certain interpretations of the Bible that say, particularly in the old Testament, where they, there's the discussion on thou shall not murder versus thou shall not kill. Um, certainly the, the use of meek is is yet another um and, and that's, that's kind of the meek yeah. the meek is a new testament thing that's not in the torah that's in right that's right. a new testament thing um the interesting thing about the um old testament and i'm no biblical scholar i started i studied all that when i was much younger but i'm no biblical scholar at all um but it was an interesting thing when i would read the bible when i was younger and there was the thou shalt not kill as a Ten Commandment. But if you actually read the Bible, there's a whole lot of genocide yes. by the Jews. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. So it's like, okay, you shall not kill as long as they're of your species, of your race, shall we say, right? Your ethnicity. But not to not to go too far down that pathway, right? right. But right. but back to the eternal war. My, you know, because the King James Bible came out in the 1600s, right? Right about the time that this 400-year cycle started, uh, five saculums ago, right? This was printed in the meek shall inherit the earth is printed in the King James Bible, which was the Bible that was given out to the common people that made the English-speaking peoples the most at the time, well, in some time, but at some point, the most literate people on earth. And this subtle little change would have given resentfuls who, who were in control of the institutions would have given resentfuls far more power over the world, over life, would have weakened adoptables to such a degree that up to maybe 80% of the population at any time would be in the resentfuls camp. It was an eternal war reality warping right that's one of the chapters one of the doctrinal lines in the eternal war right reality it was a way in the early 1600s that reality was warped by the the translation of that word probably intentional and then the dissemination out there well think about that that's, that's pretty solid that's probably exactly what happened and it shaped yeah. western the the Christian world and the English speaking because the ref, the Protestantism that was really driven in England with the the breaking from the Catholic Church there had been Protestant movements and stuff in the continental Europe at the time but they really didn't take strength till Henry VIII etc right they used that trend, that King James Bible as the base primarily right um, that think about the 
unbelievable impact that little word change had on modern society and civilization. Now think about what people might be doing today to warp reality. It's not just the obvious gross stuff like the, the, you know, the quote unquote leftist stuff or the Marxist stuff and all that. It's not, it's right. not that. And it's also not just the, the quote unquote left. It's also the right doing it. The quote unquote right. Cause I'm not sure there is a right or left anymore. Right. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. So where we are right now, the, the, the time that we are about to go through in the crisis phase of this saculum, that's the fifth and final in this 400 year cycle. Again, that's Strauss and Howe. So it's not me just, you know, pulling stuff out of my fourth point of contact. Right. Um, we are moving into a place and time where we need to be able to navigate our way through our personal relationships, through the dialogue inside of ourselves and in the world where we use very little language. Where we don't look to these linguistic, complex, sophisticated, beautiful ling linguistic arguments and structures that we've created over the last 400 years because they don't have any, they've been corrupted. All of them have been corrupted and they don't, they are immensely disconnected from base reality. And we as a species have got to get back to base reality. That doesn't mean going back to the Abrahamic belief systems. Maybe it does for some people, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean going back to some lower level of technological development. We're not Luddites, we're not doing that. Some people might try to make it happen, right? But it means that for at least the next 15, 20 years, sometime into the late 2030s, we need to be able to navigate ourselves through the world with some very simple heuristics. Some very, like, is that person resentful or are they responsible? Is their language, is their posture, even if their language is a lie, it, are their actions the actions of a resentful or is it responsible? And, and or or are they being torn back and forth between the two? And maybe they're too much on the resentful side, even if they're adoptable and we can't do much to help them. And and for them, we're not going to change their mind. We need to be aware of them and careful. But if they are somebody that's more responsibility oriented and 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 could maybe be given some information or understanding that could help them remove or lessen some of the resentment in their life. Okay, how do we help them? How do we identify them and help them do that? And then yeah. during all of that, we also have to fundamentally, we have to, we, most of us can't do it. It's the oligarchs that will do this, but they have to actually fundamentally, and these are some of the conversations I'm having with some of the top families, shall we say, is they do actually have to fundamentally update the infinite game also. And that's not universal basic income. All these things that they've been trying for the last 20 years or so, put a trillion dollars or so into through philanthropy, hasn't worked. So the oligarchs, second and third sons who run the nonprofits have learned an immense amount in the last 20 years. They really have. And unfortunately, they've done a lot of damage in that learning process, right? Yeah. But they're the ones that are going to actually update the game. And the game does need to update. It doesn't get... Reduce back, you know, we don't go from Halo 4 back to Halo 1, just to use a gross analogy, right? We don't right. do that. In fact, we got to go to 
sorry to use the Halo reference because the ones after Halo 4 suck. But anyways, <laughs> let's just be saying that. But, <sighs> but point is, is that we're going to have to, we, in particular, we of action, right? The action class, the responsibles oriented action class, because the resentful's got their own action class. And by the way, I know I've got friends. I wouldn't call them friends. I got colleagues at the three letters, et cetera. And boy, there's some psychotic fucking people. And even in my own units, et cetera, right? Straight up fucking psychopaths. And the truth is we need them. Okay. So that, forgive me. That's one other piece for the, the thing I should articulate. We cannot get rid of the war or the game or resentfuls or responsibles because these, this conflict, this constant conflict, this constant attempt to survive the conflict is what has created everything, every great thing that our species has ever done and will ever do is actually a direct result of this conflict. And without the conflict, we actually become weak and, and complacent and we can get wiped out in an instant if something in the environment changes substantially enough. So it's built in at the cellular level, by the way, in all life, this conflict and this game. So uh, with all of that, it is so profound, so, such a, a profound conversation. So, so I mean, the, the uh, this is a podcast, and and I I don't often do this, but um because th this is this is just one that I'm gonna have to digest a, a lot of the concepts here. I you know I, I would like to have you back on in the near future. I'm gonna be out in in Wyoming for much of June, but when I come back, I would like to have you on again to pick this conversation up for sure and integrate, you know, kind of your, your thoughts on spiral dynamics, because we're, we're kind of, you're approaching it from a, from a, uh, a different intellectual framework, but it's very similar to spiral dynamics and how societies develop and evolve over time. And we, we approach uh, higher tiers of ourselves i'd throw all that out i'd throw all that out what i would what i would i would be honored to come back and speak some more what i would do though is i would i would direct you to dissipative structure and dissipative structure theory all right for sure that is the fundamental underlying principle that's playing out in physics chemistry and biology and if we think in any form or fashion that we as a species as a human that every cell in our body and every function process, thought, et cetera, isn't directly being driven by dissipative structure theory. Well, the, the processes that come out of dissipative structure theory, thermodynamics, laws of conservation of energy, Maxwell's equations, et cetera, then we are ludicrously mistaken. But the fundamental underlying property that's always at play is dissipative structures. I can't wait personally, uh, personally, I, I can't wait to have that conversation. And uh, I'm really looking forward to diving into the eternal war and digesting it. I'm going to have uh, a lot of time to do so. 
uh, in the next several days as I'm traveling. So I'm really looking forward to this. Um, and I think that, that a whole heck of a lot of other people are as well. How can people find you? How can they follow you in your work? Well, I appreciate that. Um, and, and safe journeys and please do enjoy Wyoming. It's great this time of year. Um, you can find me on Twitter at my name, at my name, E.M. Burlingame. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it at all very much anymore, but there's a repository of writings I've done there. You can type my name in Small Wars Journal in to see things I've written on, um, on special operations and the use of venture capital style thinking and investing, et cetera, um, and startups in special operations. Um, and then the academia.edu has a number of papers that I've written, et cetera. But best thing to do is just get on Twitter. I don't do Facebook or any of the other social media stuff because I was getting throttled. Um, shadow band, I guess you call it. Um, but that would be the best way. You can look me up on Amazon. All three books are there. Um, but you know, I'd follow me on Twitter and have a comment, you know, reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, we can do email, all that. If, if, if we connect and you want some further information, but we, as our community in particular, and that's the, you know, I like to call it the action class, right? But we are heading into a time to where everything is going to want us to go kill people on their behalf. And we need to stop doing that. We need to make, it doesn't mean we don't get to stop killing because maybe we don't, but we need to stop killing for resentfuls and we need to stop killing in support of the eternal war. We need to be able, and we're, we're now already in a time where disinformation, misinformation, where lies are the standard. And we are people that believe deeply in humanity and civilization. Unfortunately, we are linguistic monkeys that can have our, our beliefs, our desires, our understandings hijacked by very clever people. And we're entering a period for the next 15 to 20 years where we can't allow that to happen. Because the cost to humanity is too great with what we can do with nuclear weapons, bio-warfare, information warfare, reputation warfare, lawfare. We can destroy our species now. We really can. And so for the next 15, 20 years, our community in particular has to get back to first principles, not so much to be on the offense, but actually be on a good, healthy defense. Amen. I think you're exactly right about that. Um, you know, we, we, we have the capacity to absolutely destroy absolutely destroy and devastate our civilization. And I, I agree completely uh, that, that, you know, we, we look at these small, relatively small flashpoints uh, that, that we're approaching we're here and we're reaching a whole other topic. This would end up being, you know, with Ukraine uh, with Syria that has the potential to, to flash, uh, be a flashpoint again. Iran. Syria's done. Uh, Syria's done. Ukraine's done. That's all done. The, the right. real fundamental threat, no, if I may, the real fundamental threat that we have in the West is that we are way beyond bankrupt. Yes. Our entire economy has been fueled solely by debt. 
since the early 1990s. We are beyond bankrupt. And the world, the only way our system's been working is that people like us have gone around the world, not knowingly, but have gone around the world at the point of a gun and threatened the world to keep buying our debt. And the rest of the world now has become strong enough, capable enough to tell us no. Yeah. And so what's about to fall upon us at a fundamental level is we are going to have to deal with the fact that we have bankrupted five generations, three living generations, at least two generations, and probably three, four generations ahead of us. And how do we rebuild? How do we collapse? How do we do a controlled demolition, which is already underway? And how do we survive in that? How do we survive the chaos and and uh, violence that's fostered by people that want to hide their, the fact that they did this. So we have to survive the collapse right now. And I don't mean the collapse of Rome and all that. And you got to understand, people think the collapse of Rome, it collapsed and went to all this. No, Charlemagne rode into Rome eight or four centuries after the supposed fall of Rome, and Rome was still there. People were still doing business. It wasn't as big as it was. It was a much reduced Rome, but Rome never actually fell. Not the way we think it, right? Not the fucking Mad Max Thunderdome shit. That never happened. It happened in parts of the empire, but it didn't happen in Rome and in the core of the empire. So we're about to head into that because we are bankrupt. We can't force the world to keep buying our debt anymore. And we're going to have to go through that period. Yeah, I agree. I agree a thousand percent and then some. Ian Burlegang, brother, it has been such an honor to have you in here uh, to to have this conversation. And I think that, that this is one that we need to resume in the very near future. I would be honored. And it, it's been a pleasure. Sorry about the connectivity issues. No, no that's all right. Talk to a friend of mine that knows Elon and, and say, hey. What's going up, man, with your Starlink? Your Starlink <laughs> Starlink's supposed to be doing all this badass shit, and we can't even talk chit-chat. No. I need to – well, I, I need to get it on a 60-foot platform. Is, is ah, really so maybe it's a Anglo declination issue. It is. By the way, yeah. like Clay, I was also an 18 Echo when I started out in SF, so um, yeah. I don't put that out there. And then I was an 18 Fox like him as well, So and in the same kind of unit as he was, So, but just in first group. So anyways, brother, I appreciate brother. it, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for being on with us. God bless. And everybody out there, give him a follow on Twitter. He has, as you've heard for the entirety of this episode, he's got some uh, really incredibly important and relevant takes on the world. Um, you know, the, the eternal war definitely on my must read list and it should be on yours as well. Head on over to brushbeater.store. Got a lot of new products over there. Got a bunch of HF radios in as well. They're going to be selling out fast. And like I said, by the end of the summer, all of the enablers, all of the things that, that folks have been asking for in class have been emailing me, everything uh, that, that you've been wanting out of an online store out there that is dedicated to freedom and is dedicated to supplying the armed American for these dangerous times ahead. 
We're making it happen. We're going to make it a reality. Folks, keep your head on a swivel. Stay safe. And I'll talk to you again very, very soon. This is NC Scout out.